This KPCT podcast sponsored by Karen Pryor Academy for Animal Training and Behavior. Get the details on our professional dog trainers program. We develop, certify, and support excellent teachers and trainers. Visit www.karenpryoracademy.com or call 800-472-5425. That's 800-472-5425. Hello, my name is Kimberly Davis. I'll be reading excerpts from my new book, Teaching the Dog to Think. The first excerpt is from Chapter 1. I am starting a dog training agility class with my collie, Willow, and our new trainer, Sue Reed, is insisting that I give up the harsh, punitive training methods I've always used in favor of the positive training techniques used by agility trainers. After introducing herself, Sue glanced about with a sort of mild disapproval at her new dog agility pupils. There were by now six or seven handlers gathered in front of her with our dogs of varying breeds. Sue began by stating her training principles in a clear, ringing tone, as if to the recalcitrant or merely ignorant. We will have no negative training, she said. Agility is not obedience training. It is fun and games for the dogs, fun and games. We will not be using choke collars. At this point, Sue was walking up and down in front of her row of agility students, rather like a drill sergeant. There will be no jerking of the dog's necks, she continued, no pushing the dogs around. We will not reprimand the dogs with no, no saying oops or "Uh uh-oh if your dog makes a mistake. As she said these last few things, Sue was gazing at me, it seemed, and wearing a bland, slightly mystified expression. I was conscious, suddenly, of what I was doing with my own dog. Willow had started barking again with the excitement of all the other arriving dogs and handlers, and I had clicked his leash back on his choke collar and had been snapping his neck with this chain-link noose to quiet him the whole time Sue had been speaking. No, I had told him several times in a loud stage whisper. Sue had now paused in her introductory remarks and was cocking an eyebrow at me, She said in a voice laced with irony, Do you have a flat buckle collar? She could see that I did. Then why don't you use it, was what she didn't add, and didn't I just say to quit jerking his neck? I only put the choke collar on because of the horses and the other dogs, I explained to her weakly, at the same time clicking Willow's leash back on his flat-webbed collar. He gets so excited but I did not remove the steel choke from around his neck. Sue eyed me coldly with her icy blue eyes and then moved on to another handler whose border collie was wearing a harness. When she was done checking our collars, she stepped back and said in that same ringing instructor's voice, In here we reward the good behavior and ignore the bad. We are teaching the dogs to think teaching the dogs to think. She repeated this phrase as if it was a mystery we were to ponder. Teaching the dogs to think, huh? This idea was new to me, that dogs might be able to think, that they might be capable of rational thought. I had never especially thought of dogs as thinking. At the time, I couldn't imagine what Sue was talking about. 
I gazed down skeptically at Willow. Under Sue's scrutiny, my young collie had quieted for a few moments, but he was now back to barking again, bounding on his front paws, still excited by all the new smells. He had also seen and, from our previous puppy kindergarten classes, apparently recognized, some of the agility equipment. We had practiced tunnels and jumps in our earlier training classes, and Willow knew that once he had whooshed through the long, curving red tunnel or hopped over a low bar jump, he would get a tasty treat. He could also smell the commercially manufactured dog treats in the foil wrapper inside my jeans pocket. Seeing me looking down at him, he prodded the denim fabric covering the treats at my hip with his long, velvet nose and kept up his shrill racket. "'Can't you shut him up?' the woman next to me said, shooting me a dirty look. She was holding the leash of a sweet-faced Sheltie with a ragged coat who was sitting attentively at her heel in a neat sit, absolutely silent. "'Sorry,' I said, and resisted the urge to jerk Willow by the neck again. With a sigh of resignation, I reached into my pocket, doing the only other thing that I could think of doing at that moment to make my dog stop barking. It was something I had been taught to do in our previous obedience class, where Willow also did a fair amount of barking and lunging. I tried to distract him, or redirect him, as they say in dog training parlance, with a game of earn the cookie. I pulled a tasty treat from the foil packet at my hip and held it out in front of Willow's nose. Instantly, he stopped lunging and yapping, and his long snout swiveled towards me, his brown eyes bright with interest, his ears pricked. I brought the dog treat to my chin and said, Watch me. Willow's gaze found mine, his expression full of adoration, not for me, perhaps, but for the treat. Good watch me, I praised, and handed him the treat, and then pulled another from my pocket. Now sit, I told him, and held the second treat out over his head. He looked at me as he finished chewing the first treat, then cast his gaze around at the other dogs, whose presence he had not forgotten. Sit, I repeated, and fingered the second treat. He looked at me, deciding whether or not he would cooperate, and then sat. From his sitting position, he nuzzled my hand and then looked back at my face. Down, I said, and held the second treat low. He went down on his belly, and I handed the treat to him. Lying there, chewing quietly on his dog treat, Willow looked truly relaxed and calm for the first time that evening. It will probably not be lost on the reader that this reward distraction method had worked far better for me than all of the shouting no and jerking on his collar that I previously did. I'm going to skip ahead now and read from chapters 5 and 6. By this point in the book, I've given up because I said so, and I've become interested in where these kinder, more effective training methods came from, and I begin to see the effects they are starting to have on my dog, Willow. Uh, to understand this section, you need only to know that Bill Keeler was a military-style dog trainer whose dog training theories held sway for a long time in the U.S. 
The old harsh dog training tactics had held sway right up through the 1980s, but by the early 90s, dog trainers, at least at the higher levels of competition, were beginning to turn to more gentle training approaches that had been developed based upon the behavioral principles of positive reinforcement and operant conditioning. Around this time, Karen Pryor, who had been a dolphin trainer back in the 1960s and early 70s and who helped pioneer these techniques, founded Sunshine Books in order to disseminate information about these kinder animal training methods. Pryor and other operant trainers began giving seminars and handing out small handheld clickers, which were used to mark for correct behavior. I'll get to clickers later. The result was that this new training technology suddenly became widely available to dog trainers in the United States for the first time. As with all such revolutions, the old guard of military dog trainers came kicking and screaming. The positive techniques couldn't be ignored, though, and for one very simple reason. They worked, and fabulously well. Soon, positive trainers were cleaning up in the obedience ring and at agility trials and having the kind of success that was very hard to argue with. With the publication of Lads and Don't Shoot the Dog, Pryor's volume on dog training, the new positive training methods were quickly seized upon by two camps in the dog training community, the service dog trainers and the agility trainers. Why these two sets of dog trainers were so quick to pounce upon these new positive techniques had to do with the needs of their specific fields. In the case of service and guide dog trainers, it was partly an image problem. In the old days, when the harsh tactics held sway, it wasn't uncommon to see a blind person choking, scruff-shaking, or even striking his long-suffering seeing-eye dog. In those days, usually a hollow-eyed, miserable-looking black lab. Needless to say, this did little to improve the public profile of disabled people, as the service and guide dog trainers were doubtlessly aware, being kind-hearted folk in the helping industry. As soon as something better came along, they, at least many of them, seized on it. In the case of agility training, the trouble was a little different. The harsh methods simply didn't work. Punitive or aversive training tactics, as Pryor will tell you in her books, can sometimes be usefully employed in limited ways to extinguish or eliminate unwanted behaviors. However, harsh or coercive training methods are next to useless when you are trying to get an animal to perform complex or physically arduous tasks, particularly those that require a lot of handler communication or independent thinking on the animal's part. Punitive or corrective methods tend to switch the dog off, off the handler, off the task. This can be a good thing if you are trying to stop a dog from jumping up or biting, but not if you're trying to get the dog's attention so that he'll work with you. What rational creature, after all, would want to pay attention to someone who kept pinching his ear or play a game with a handler who insisted upon choking him? I want to back up now and return to our agility training with Sue Reed. 
By the time Willow and I were a couple of weeks into our training, we seemed to be doing fairly well, or so it appears from the journals I kept to track our training progress. We had by that point gotten to know the other handlers and their dogs, and when we arrived at the big blue equestrian arena, we all wheeled confidently into the muddy parking lot in our vans and SUVs, honking hello, the dogs barking at each other through nose-smeared windows. As we climbed out of our vehicles, there was a snap to the air, and dry leaves swirled about our feet, for somewhere along the way it had gotten to be fall. The arena itself, when we entered, was always a hotbed of activity. On any given night, thoroughbred horses were being groomed and tended in stalls that ran along one wall of the building. Inside the arena itself, here would be Sue, directing some teenager she had recruited to set up the night's obstacles in a complex preset arrangement. While this was going on, there might be an advanced student from another class running his dog a Doberman or a Belgian Tavern, perhaps, through a tight series of jumping maneuvers. The place smelled strongly of dog dander and horse manure, and you could always hear a whinny or a stray bark. Clambering out of our Subaru outback, Willow seemed like a new dog, now that he had a job to report to and was no longer being punished, at least not in class. Here he knew what was coming and the range of tasks he was likely to be asked to perform, and his movements had taken on a brisk, almost professional air. He entered the arena tail up, his neck arched beneath his big collie ruff, poised for whatever would be coming next. He strode about the sawdust floor with the disciplined focus of an engineer at a car factory, reviewing the obstacles that had been erected and checking for any changes from last week. Was the plank set higher or lower? Had the jumps been moved? Did the tunnels smell differently? He greeted the other dogs with a friendly interest, yet with a new reserve, no longer going to pieces when he saw them. Utterly gone was the crazed puppy I used to know. My goodness, I thought, what had happened to this young dog? My big task with him now was in making sure he didn't burn himself out with anticipation before we ever got to class. Watching Willow move about the arena with his new business-like air, I remember being fascinated and somewhat amused by his liking to have a job, by this dog going to work with a lunch pail in hand. I think now that dogs, and yes, people too, like to be asked to do things, to do tasks, and to be rewarded for doing them. On our own, we are all a bit lazy, are we not? How hard it was for me to sit down and write this morning. But applying ourselves to something gives us a good feeling, a sense of satisfaction and accomplishment, feelings that are reinforced by our reward at the end of the day or week, whether it be the money we receive or, in the dog's case, meat and praise, bonuses that are all the more satisfying for having been earned. From my observations of Willow, I don't think these feelings are all that different for a dog than they are for a human being. Dogs, at least working dogs, seem to like being asked to perform and being paid for doing so. With each brief class, Willow seemed to make enormous gains, not only in attention and confidence, but also in self-control and, above all, in calmness.
in calmness. This was my other observation of him, that he was a noticeably calmer dog than he was just a few classes before. I remember marveling at how quickly Sue Reed was able to transform my crazed, lunging puppy into a focused canine student working for treats. Early on, though, I think that I thought it was merely a fluke, or perhaps Sue had some kind of animal trainer's magic powder that she was sprinkling on his nose or something. Looking back on it, though, what is truly amazing to me is the speed with, with, with which this alteration in my young dog took place. It wasn't an overnight thing at all, but rather was a profound and permanent change in Willow's personality that became more and more evident with each class we attended, so that by the time several classes had gone by, he seemed a very different dog. He was no longer all over the place. He seemed to have gotten hold of his young body. He moved about smoothly and sleekly and with a new sense of mission. He watched me owlishly for signals radiating from my face or shoulders or came over and nosed my hands or gazed inquiringly in my eyes. What's next? He had never looked at me in quite this way before and the warm intensity of his eyes made my heart beat a little faster. That's a good place to stop. I hope you'll read the book. Thank you for listening. This has been Kimberly Davis reading from Teaching the Dog to Think. This KPCT podcast sponsored by Karen Pryor Academy for Animal Training and Behavior. Get the details on our professional dog trainers program. We develop, certify, and support excellent teachers and trainers. Visit www.karenpryoracademy.com or call 800-472-5425. That's 800-472-5425.